I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. There's no more soothing sound than the steady stream of water. There's been many a sunny afternoon during which I've sat back in a garden with no greater intention than to relax into the sounds of a burbling water feature. And researchers have a name for this calming physiological shift. They call it the diving response or the diving reflex. They say that the heart rate slows and certain blood vessels constrict to help the mammalian body conserve oxygen when underwater. So what started out as an evolutionary response to survive now just helps us relax. Or so the theory goes. The sounds and sights of water in the home garden are so delicious that today's show is dedicated to exactly that. We'll be talking to garden writer and broadcaster Martin Cox about how to return an overgrown swamp back into a glorious shimmering pond along with some exotic aquatic plant recommendations. And my friend and colleague Guy Barter will be talking us through water butts and how to seize this time of year to ensure you've got plenty of water stored up ahead of what's sure to be another hot summer next year. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. But first, if you've never really thought about how water can transform the feel of a garden, allow our next guest to shed a little light. We spoke to award-winning garden designer Nicola Oki about how to incorporate a pond of any size into your garden and the wondrous effects it can have. I think for most people, ponds and just water in general seem to have like a really big gravitational pull there's something to do with water and our interaction with water as children and the fun and the energy that it has that means that even in adult life ponds are really fascinating spaces and getting down on your hands and knees to look at something in more detail or sitting and hiding behind a bush because you're watching some really exciting wildlife. That is part of the joy and the fascination of ponds. And I think they bring a real sort of energy to a garden. They can add sound, movement, reflection. And I think in many ways, the wildlife that a pond can encourage in a garden space, that is what brings a garden to life and makes it buzz and gives it real sort of movement and excitement beyond just sort of having colourful plants in the garden. Ponds are great sources for wildlife because they're such diverse habitats and I think they really are like a sort of ecosystem in themselves. You know, they really are sort of their own their own circle of life. 
The day in a life of a garden pond, I don't think you could ever say that any day would be the same. But as a general idea, I think early in the morning, you'd get a lot of birds there coming to sort of wash and preen ahead of the day. Preening with birds is really important and the water helps to sort of separate their feathers. And when they preen, that means that they can move the oils about that are contained in their feathers. And that helps to keep the birds warm in winter. So it's a really important process and ponds are just as important for sort of winter wildlife as summer. So, yeah, you get your birds in the morning and then sort of during the day, lots of sort of insect life and amphibians. You may get birds coming to sort of hunt on the water. So swifts or swallows will sort of dive across the surface of the water to catch little midges. And then I think really in the evening time, when things get a little bit quieter, that's when I think the ponds really come to life. If you shine a torch on a pond at dusk, then you can often see newts. Animals like hedgehogs will come and drink from ponds at dusk. You can often get bats that, like birds, will come and drink and feed from the ponds. And then sort of a whole range of nocturnal wildlife that probably use the pond overnight and we have absolutely no idea about. Having a pond in the garden definitely unlocks this sort of different world of wildlife, especially when you compare it to other ways that we encourage wildlife in the garden with like bird feeders. That's quite specific, whereas a pond just has such a broad range of animals that use it. For people thinking about getting a pond in their own garden, I'd say there are a few sort of really key things. So the first thing, I think it really pays to sort of do some research and spend time thinking about how you want your pond to look and whether you want it to be sort of very organically shaped and sort of curved and very natural or whether you want something that's a bit more sort of angular and formal and how that sort of ties in with the rest of your garden as well because you want the whole thing to sort of feel connected. Equally, I think it's good to spend a bit of time thinking about locations in the garden as well that would be suitable for a pond. And I'm a really big sort of advocate of just marking things out and imagining where they might be. So, you know, you might mark a pond out with a bit of rope or with a bit of hose pipe. And then I think just sort of living with it and moving around the garden, imagining that it's in this particular spot or standing at your bedroom window and looking out and thinking, well, actually, maybe there isn't quite the right spot. So I think, first of all, it's that sort of preparation and just having a really good think about where you might want to have a pond in the garden because they're the kind of thing that you want to do it well once as opposed to doing it too quickly and making the wrong decision and then wishing perhaps you'd done it slightly differently. I think the cost of a pond can vary quite a lot and I think there are ways to have water in the garden or have a pond in a cheap way. It may be that you just do something simpler in a container as a starting point because even just introducing water into the garden that way you'll see there's so much wildlife that comes and responds to that. But then equally there are sort of different levels of material that you can use and some things are cheaper and they might not last for as long but they do offer a cheap alternative equally say you choose to use a rigid pond liner which is usually a sort of plastic 
decasing. Often people don't want those anymore, so they're trying to get rid of them. So there might be things that you might be able to sort of pick up secondhand. So although I'd always kind of say to people to try and create a pond with as much money as you can afford to spend on it, because better quality materials you can use, you know, the longer your pond's going to last. Equally, I think with a bit of thinking, there are sort of ways to get around it. So there are four main planting groups for ponds. So you've got your oxygenators, which are submerged in the water, sometimes completely, sometimes partially. They produce oxygen, they absorb impurities, they help to reduce the algae growth in the pond, and they also provide really great cover for aquatic life. The next group is floating pond plants, so they don't require any soil and they just bob around the pond. Many of them drop to the bottom in wintertime when it gets cold. They're good because they help to reduce the amount of sunlight on the surface of the water, so it keeps the water cooler and, again, keeps algae growth down. You've then got your marginal plants. Now, this is a massive group of plants because they can be grown at water depths from anything under five centimetres up to 30 centimetres or more. And they're really good because they're what you put at the edges of your pond. So they help soften the edge, make it look really natural. They're really important as well for bridging the gap between the pond and the rest of the garden visually, but also for wildlife so that the wildlife can actually feel like it can safely access the pond and safely get away from sort of any predators without being seen. And they also provide a bit of shade as well, which is really good in the shallows of the pond. And the final group is water lilies, which again can go from very shallow depths or even containers right through to planting depths of a metre. And I guess they're the kind of ultimate pond plant, really, aren't they? Like, is a pond right without a water lily? Because they're just so beautiful. And again, really good to providing lots of cover as well as pollination with their flowers. So there are a couple of water lilies I'd recommend for very small ponds or containers. There's a cultivar called Pygmia alba, and it's a very small, white, flowered water lily, and it can be planted at 20 to 50 centimetres. So it's ideal for small spaces. There's only one native water lily that we have, and that's a cultivar called Alba, and that's quite a vigorous, big water lily. So you need a larger pond space if you want to grow one of those. And both of those that I've listed are white, but water lilies do come in a really lovely range of colours and sport for choice, really, in terms of the varieties that there are. And really, it just comes down to making sure that it's the right size for the size pond that you have. To be honest, once you've got it there, you'll wonder why you even contemplated potentially not having one in the garden because they're just such wonderful features to have. And I think in many ways, if you want to do something for nature or really bring it into your garden, there is no better thing to do than to have a pond. But I guess if you feel a little bit nervous about you know, actually digging something out, it might be a good idea to start with a container and try some water plants in there 
just to sort of see how much wildlife even something really small can bring into the garden and then that might just help to give the little extra push to then actually create a bigger pond space. Thanks Nicola. I love her advice. Do it well once. This is such a core piece of gardening advice, particularly with ponds, because it's a big investment of time to make one and they're a brilliant garden feature. So they're worth every penny and every minute that you put into making them. I also like Nicola's tip about dipping your toe in, pun intended, with a mini wildlife pond. In my tiny urban garden, about halfway down, nestled amongst different pots of salvias and sedges and all different things, I've got a little raised pond. It's like almost like a half barrel, but it's a big, it's a big terracotta pot that I've sealed. And the birds will all line up along the edge for a drink. I've even seen frogs in there. It's not specifically designed for wildlife, but it really draws lots and lots of different creatures in. I've put a little miniature water lily, one called Helvilla, in there, and a native oxygenator called Hornwort, which is Serratophyllum demersum. And those two plants together work really well just to give a little bit of shade, put a bit of oxygen into the water, and kind of mop up any excess nutrients. It, it's a really successful little pond. And ponds aren't the only bodies of water a home gardener can employ, and it's really useful to have a water butt, as RHS Chief Horticulture Advisor Guy Barter is here to tell us. I'm standing here in my garden in suburban Surrey on a cool day in late September with a cloudy sky, but the rain's given over for a while, which is just as well because my water butts are all full. During the summer, of course, during the drought, they were depleted, in fact, they were empty. But now, after four inches of rain, they're full again. At the moment in the garden, I've got seven water butts, and they're connected to the garage roof, to shed roofs, and to the greenhouse roof. So the one I've got in front of me, I've had for a long time, such a long time, in fact, that it's covered in ivy, so it's quite a wildlife feature. The ivy's flowering already, and bees and the odd wasp are busy collecting nectar from it. Later on, the ivy will be covered in berries, and the birds will feast on it. In fact, I can't actually see my water butt, which is a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view, and I rather like it. I've accumulated my water butts over the years, and to fill them, I've gone round to the DIY superstore and bought some guttering and some pipes and some fastenings and connected the guttering to the various sheds I've got lying around the place and leading those pipes and guttering into the water butt. The water butt I put on the stand. When I moved into this house, there was loads of rubble and bricks and paving slabs lying about, so I repurposed all that into making a stand for the water butts. Water's heavy old stuff, so you want a strong stand to put the water butt on. Now the rainwater, of course, is very valuable. It's acid and it's low in nutrients, so it's ideal for topping up the pond, for watering my potted camellias and rhododendrons, which are acid-loving plants, and also for the house plants, particularly for orchids, which don't like the nutrient or mineral-rich tap water as much as they like acid rainwater. Water butts themselves aren't very expensive. They're less than £40, so there isn't a vast outlay when you come to think about it, and it always feels good using water that you saved yourself. Now, at this time of year, one of the downsides is that loads of leaves are going to fall off the trees, end up in the guttering, and go into my water butts. I don't worry about that at all. 
every so often, not very often, I have to say, several years go between intervals. I empty the water butts and tip out all the rotten gubbins at the bottom. It's just a kind of black sludge. I just tip it out under the apple trees or the hydrangeas. It's no problem. If I never tipped it out, it probably wouldn't be a, a big problem. It would take years to build up. In fact, I have water butts that I've never cleaned out and I've had for many years. And the material at the bottom can stay there for as long as it likes. It does no problem. The great thing about water butts is they work really well in wet summers because as soon as you empty them, they fill up again. In a dry summer like we've just had, they don't work quite so well. My strategy for summer is to use two thirds of the water and then leave it one third full and top up to two thirds again with a hose pipe, assuming that there's no hose pipe bam. The alkaline tap water, and it's very alkaline here in southern England, mixes with the acid rainwater and it becomes neutral. Then I use that and if I run out, well, that's the end of the matter. But with any luck, there'll be a rainstorm and it'll top the water butts up. And that's why I always leave them no fuller than two thirds. There's always a third of the water butt to catch any rainstorms that come along so that no water is wasted. I've got one water butt that I foolishly let fall off its stand and now it's got a split. So I've got to fill it up with water over the winter to find the split. I can't find it any other way, but I know it's there. When I found it, I'm going to seal it with some of the silicon sealant I use on the roof of the greenhouse. I have tried all sorts of fixes like uh, the patching things that are sold to mend petrol tanks on cars, but uh, they haven't worked and now I can't find the split. But as soon as I found the split, I'm going to try and mend it. So water butts are easy things to install, they're not expensive, they're a lot of fun. I quite like looking at all the water in my water butts and treasuring it and using it through the summer. It's all part of gardening and I recommend anyone to get a collection of water butts going and you'll have free water and you'll be protecting the environment and your plants will appreciate it. Thank you, Kai. I'm a really big fan of collecting water. It's so precious. You know, tap water has a big carbon footprint. We are quite a water-stressed country, believe it or not. And I think as Guy said, rainwater is better for your plants. If you've got hard water, these minerals can build up in your plant pots. It's not a terrible problem, but it's worth avoiding if you can. And you'll notice it if you're watering evergreen plants time and time again with tap water, you'll get that little bit of lime scale on the leaves. If you can avoid that, it's brilliant. And also, this is anecdotally, but I think not having chlorine and the water not being cold in the summer, I think that's better for plant roots and soil life. One tip I know from bitter experience is to always make your water butt high enough that you can fit your watering can underneath it because it's very annoying to have to kind of angle your watering can underneath the tap to actually fit it in. So yeah, it's very worthwhile. Just when you're putting the water butt in, you can buy a water butt stand or you can use a few breeze blocks, but make sure it's high up enough off the ground that you can fit your can underneath. It's really important to realize this before you've got 100 liters of beautifully stored rainwater. We've been putting up a mighty effort today to drum up interest towards bringing a pond into a green space, no matter how big or small. But our next guest is here to break down some of the practicalities of pond ownership and maintenance and let you determine if it's really worth it. 
ponds are an essential feature for gardens and I certainly wouldn't be without one. It just adds so much to the garden, it adds an extra dimension to it. I mean, what it does is in the summer, I've got a little fountain in there, so the sound of running water in the fountain is absolutely wonderful. What it does is it actually sort of drowns out all the sounds from the neighbours' sides of the garden, so it you know, makes it a real tranquil space. It can turn any garden into a bit of an oasis. Hi, my name is Martin Cox. I'm a garden writer, author and presenter and I write a weekly column in the Mail on Sunday and I'm the author of 11 books and uh, my 11th is out now and it's called The Gardener's Yearbook. I can understand why some people might not want a pond because they'd probably see it as hard work and certainly if you've got a sort of like a neglected pond or you've taken on a new property and there's a pond in it, it's been neglected for years and years and years, yeah, it will take some work to actually sort of bring it back to be a shimmering pool of water rather than a dirty old sump. But it is absolutely possible and if you've got a pond, they're not that hard to maintain. My starting premise is always make sure you've got enough plants in it because you need at least a third of that surface area to be covered with foliage or flowers. So, you know, things like your floating aquatics, like your water lilies, absolutely brilliant to provide that surface cover. And you want that because that stops algae growing. And algae can be a big problem in ponds that have no plant life in it. So if you've got plants in it, that will help to prevent the algae from actually growing because it's basically shielding the water from the sunlight, which algae prospers in. So the more plants you've got in it, the less likelihood there is you're going to have algae in there. And that is a big problem because you don't want to be in there with a stick twirling the stuff out constantly. So I would say make sure you plant it well. Also, cut plants back. So once they start to die, and that goes for the water lilies as well, once you see those pads start to die, cut them off and take them out of the pond because if they die when they're in the pond, they'll just sink to the bottom and then you'll get all the kind of debris at the bottom of the pond, which you don't want because that will build up and build up and build up. Fish will stir it up, creatures will stir it up, so your water becomes less clear. So you do want to remove all the dead growth and do that throughout the year. So once plants start to die back, cut them off, deadhead the flowers like you would do in any other part of the garden as well, and that will prevent them falling in. This time of year, in autumn, obviously there's lots of leaves falling from the trees and from your shrubs. So it's a good idea to prevent them getting into the pond as well. And for that reason, I would say never make a pond directly underneath a tree because it's very difficult to then stop the leaves getting in there. But also, if you see any leaves in the pond, hook them out. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, the beauty and the aesthetics and all the excitement a pond brings to the garden is well worth it. Some of the jobs you need to do, it's outweighed. I mean, it really, really is. The benefits of a pond completely outweighed the jobs you have to do to maintain it. Now, if you've taken on a new property and you've got a pond that has been completely neglected, and you'll know if you have, because essentially it would just be full of sludge. It will look horrible, it'll be an eyesore, all the plants will be overgrown, there'll be very little wildlife in it because basically all it consists of is mud. You can bring them back. I mean, you really, really can bring those ponds back into life, but it will take a little bit of work to get there. The first step is to actually remove the plants. So you're going to have to sort of remove those plants, dig those plants up, lift them out, and Again, if you wanted to save some of those plants, they're going to need splitting because they're probably going to be overgrown. So, and they probably haven't been divided for a long time. So you will need to divide them, replant them into mesh containers. Mesh containers you can get from most garden centers or pond stores. And then you can plant them into aquatic compost as well. So get some new aquatic compost, split the plants, plant them up, and then you'll have some fresh stock to then put back into the pond. But you are going to have to clear out all that sludge. And that is 
I'm afraid you're going to have to get in there with a spade, dig this stuff out. If there's water still in there, you'll need to siphon that out with a bucket to get to the sludge, scoop all that sludge out, and then you'll be left with basically the base of the pond. And it might be concrete, it might be plastic, it might be butyl or another container. And you literally need to then just wash it. So with a hose pipe, wash it down to remove any debris left on the sides or at the base, clean it off, brush it out, and then you'll be left with the bare bones of the pond. Refill it with water, add your plants back into it, and before you know it, you'll be getting wildlife coming back into the pond. I've got several favourite pond plants that I really, really love and wouldn't be without. Now, I'm a big lover of exotic plants, so I've got a cypress in there, sort of like an umbrella cypress, which has this beautiful sort of architectural form to it, and it gets quite tall. It gets up to about sort of three foot tall, something like that, and that is absolutely fantastic. Spreads quite slowly in my pond, but looks absolutely brilliant. Forms a really nice clump in there and adds to the kind of the exotic look elsewhere in my garden. There's also a lovely sedge called Curly Whirly, which has beautiful curly leaves. So again, just adds a little bit of interest and you know, just looks a bit different to other plants in the garden. Also, I wouldn't be without water lilies. I mean, you know, I think water lilies are absolutely beautiful and I've got one in my garden. It's got yellow flowers. I've no idea what its name is, but it's been in there for a long, long time. And I bought it as an unnamed variety. It's a dwarf form and it flowers from about July all the way. It's actually, there's a flower on it now. So it's still flowering now. So I get a long season of interest out of that. Plus, I love the leaves as well because they give me that cover on top of the pond. So, you know, preventing the algae from growing. So they're three plants that I've got in my pond that I wouldn't be without. I really do think that having a water feature or a pond is, you know, I wouldn't be without one in the garden because I think they just give you that extra dimension. What it does, it just adds so much to your space because not only is it pretty, not only is that aesthetically pleasing, you bring life into your garden because you'll get creatures visiting the pond. But also when you've turned on the fountain, you've got the sound as well, which I think some people who live in a city surrounded by noisy roads, you know, the hurly burly of life, having the soothing sound of water, it just allows you to relax. And I think we all need to be able to relax a little bit more. But also for me, it gives me the opportunity to grow more plants as well. So, you know, if you want to grow more plants, a whole different kind of range of plants, plants that have, you know, like wet feet. Having a pond really enables you to do that. So for me, it's win-win all the way with ponds and water features. Thanks, Martin. Well, I have a confession to make. I've got a small pond at home and it's very neat and tidy and I go out in the morning with my cup of tea and I scoop up the flower petals and leaves with a little net and it's all quite nice, but my allotment wildlife pond has kind of become a bit more of a swamp and hearing Martin has really inspired me to get out there and change that because, you know, ponds are such fertile environments for plant growth. The natural state of affairs is for plants to just grow and grow and grow and the amount of water can gradually almost disappear and that's what's happened to me. So what I'm going to do now is every year from now on, I'm going to say autumn equinox, 21st of September, that is the time to really kind of get a handle on my pond plants and make sure that there's plenty of space 
for all the newts and the frogs to swim around freely when spring comes. Really interesting hearing Martin name check a few exotic aquatic plants. There are some fantastic things that you can grow in a pond. Cypress, which is a genus of plants which includes the papyrus plant. These magnificent kind of like umbrella-like grasses that just look really, really exotic and very, very unusual. There's water cannas. So cannas are a garden favourite, but there are varieties that really grow well in water. There's colocasias, which sometimes people grow as houseplants. You can grow those in your pond over the summer. These are fabulous, exotic, sometimes quite expensive plants. So bring them in before the frost hits. So that's going to be over the next month, roughly. So come to the pond or the river of your imagination or the harbour of your longing and put your lips to the world and live your life. That's a wonderful quote by American poet Mary Oliver that I've been thinking about a lot today. And I'll certainly plan on living my life to the fullest this weekend down the allotment and tackling that wildlife pond because there is nothing better than seeing that shimmering water, newts swimming around. It's such a glorious extra dimension to a garden or to an allotment plot that, yeah, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And I realise that as things have grown over, it's time to tackle it. So I'm going to be heading down there with new vim and vigour to plan for a glorious watery 2023. So for me, Gareth Richards, I'll catch you later. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.